we have been looking at the miracles of Christ. And we've been trying to grab one key idea, one key principle from each one of the miracles. And we talked about the first miracle, which was the water and the wine, and talked about how that miracle really teaches us the power of Jesus Christ to transform something. Um, and Jesus has the ability to come in and really transform and change our lives into something that is completely different from what it was. Uh, we talked about the nobleman's son, that Jesus can heal at a distance. And the idea was that uh, the disciples were going to have to understand that God can work at a distance. Because when Jesus leaves them, they're going to have a lot of questions about, you know, what happened to our leader and, and, and how can we keep going forward. Uh, we talked about uh, the idea of the leper um, last week, which was the idea of compassion. We talked about um, the idea of the men at Beth, uh, Bethesda, which um, 38 years he had sat there with no hope. And it's the idea that Jesus offers hope. We talked about the demonic that Jesus healed and the idea that even the demons understand that Jesus is the one to be listened to. And even the demons obeyed him. Um, we talked about the, the fish and, and the idea that um, of coming along, uh, of really being obedient when Jesus said, look, you put the net there, they put the net there, and, and there's, a, there's a lesson for obedience for us. Um, and then we talked about with Peter's mother-in-law the idea of intercession, the idea of coming alongside and helping people. And as a church, uh, we, we've seen that. You know, We've seen that this past week, and we're going to see it even again today in what we look at. Um, the story this morning is actually the longest of the miracles in the Bible. It's found in Mark chapter 2, Matthew chapter 9, Luke chapter 5. So some of the things that I might say today, it might not be in the passage we read, but if you'll go to Matthew or you'll go to Luke, you'll see it there. Uh, and we won't be able to dive into all of it, but uh, it will help us get a little bit of an idea of the story. And hopefully you'll see some things that maybe you haven't seen before and some things that you can apply to your life. So let's start Mark chapter 2. Uh, is, where we're, is where our story begins. It says a few days later, uh, when Jesus again entered into Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large number, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Jesus heads back to Capernaum. We know that he was really born and raised in Nazareth, but um, he refers to Capernaum here as his home. Now, that if, you, if you're a student of your Bible, then that might raise a red flag. Well, I thought he didn't have a place to lay his head. Well, it's not like home, home, house, home. It's like home, home. Okay, let me explain to you this way. Uh, uh, when I go back to Texas, uh, I love my mom and my dad. My dad passed away. And so when I go back to Texas, my mom will always say to me, I'm glad you are home. Now, let me explain to you this home. I've never lived there. Okay, uh, I have a bedroom there, but I've never lived there. Whenever my parents moved, they always gave us, we always had a bedroom like it was when we were, my wife, <laughs> my wife and kids call it the, the Jim Thomas Shrine. Um, you know, and they walk in because it's all my stuff, you know, and it's like, you know, oh, and, and so, and my mom says, and you know, and I mean, I, it's not like I look at my mom and go, okay, mom, now look, this is not home. Uh, okay, you don't say that to your mother. Um. But it's home, home, and by that she means that's where I'm going to hang out and that's we're together as family and that kind of thing. It's the same kind of idea when it says Jesus went home to Capernaum. Apparently the disciples and Jesus kind of camped out at Capernaum. We don't know if it was at Peter's house 
or Peter's mother-in-law's house or where it was. But that kind of became like their, their central place that they would move out from. So that's important for us to understand because here's the idea. Jesus has been ministering, and he goes back to go home, to go back to where he's comfortable, to go back to where he can relax and chill. Okay? And notice what happens. The second he gets there, when the people heard that he was there, by this point in his ministry, people started to hear about miracles, and they started to hear about his teaching, and they started to get really, really curious. And so by now, all of a sudden, notice what happens. They gathered in such large numbers, there's no room left. It's like it is wall to wall. Could you imagine going home today, sitting in your easy chair, and all of a sudden people start walking in? And they keep walking in, and they keep walking in, and it says, notice what the text says, not even, there was no room left, not even outside the door. The house was packed, and Jesus is there. And it's kind of like, well, what do you do now? And anytime Jesus has an opportunity, what's his main focus? Preaching the word. So he's kind of looking at it, and he looks at it like, you know what? I've got an opportunity here. So he starts preaching, and notice what it says. And he preaches the word to them. So Jesus figures this is an opportunity. He starts teaching, and he starts telling them about the Messiah, and he starts telling them about uh, the, the, how, how they should live, and, and he starts doing all these things, and they're asking questions. Um, the, the standard form of teaching, you know, we have a kind of like today, you know, I'm going to talk, and you're going to listen. But that's not really the way the Jewish education system worked. It was an interactive thing where there was constantly stopping and asking questions and clarifying and going back and forth. So Jesus is kind of in that kind of setting, and he's teaching and, and everything else. And then notice what the text is going to say next. It says, uh, next passage, guys, uh, verse 3. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So apparently there's a guy. Now, they didn't have wheelchairs back then, so... If you were paralyzed, they would lay you down on a mat, and people would carry you around. Think of it like a stretcher. And so his buddies figured, Jesus is in town. Let's take our paralyzed friend to go see Jesus. So each one of them grabs a corner. They start hauling him. And notice it says, they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd. So they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man that was lying on them. Now, let's just stop here for a second so we understand the context. In this culture, the roofs were flat, okay? And, and the roof was actually a place that, it, it, think of it as another place to live, if you will. Um, our our modern-day analogy would be um, a deck or a porch where, you know, when it's nice, you kind of go out there and you have your barbecue and you might eat or you might have a cup of coffee or you might just sit and talk and that kind of thing. That was the roof in these days. In fact, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament actually had a rule that you had to have a, I think it was called a paraffin. It, 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 was, it was a mini wall, short wall that went around the roof so people didn't fall off. Because it was a great place to socialize. It was a great place to eat. Uh, it was a great place to sleep uh, because of the culture. They didn't have air conditioning and stuff. So a lot of times people would sleep up there at night on a cool night. So it was very accessible to people. And so uh, it could have been a deal where, you know, the, the stairs were on the outside. It could have been a deal where, have you ever seen those movies where people are like chasing somebody and they're running from roof to roof to roof? Okay, it, it was probably a deal like that too where all the roofs are kind of connected 
So it might have been a deal where they went to a buddy's roof to go to over to get to it. But they go up onto the roof. And then notice what it says. Um, it says they started digging through it. Uh, there's no other way to explain it. Uh, those of us who've been in Papua New Guinea, we can kind of understand the concept of thatched roofs and stuff like that. And, and, but So it was probably layers of stuff, and they start peeling away the layers. Now, here, here's what I want you to think about. Think about Jesus for a minute. Okay? So I'm here teaching, and while I'm teaching, and, and I'm going along, and he's doing his thing, and all of a sudden, stuff starts to fall. And he looks up, and there's stuff falling from the ceiling. And then there's a hole, and the hole gets bigger until he gets big enough to take a cot, a stretcher, tie ropes onto it, and drop it down through to this guy, to Jesus, who's standing there. So now Jesus is doing this number, and people start moving out of the way, and down from the ceiling comes this guy on a stretcher. And now, in the middle of Jesus' teaching, there's a guy on a stretcher standing in front, laying in front of him. Here's what's fascinating about this story, and you're going to see this. This is going to actually, when we get the application, this is going to be important. The only person that talks in this story is Jesus. And I'm going to tell you why when we get to the end, but, but, because I think that's very significant, and I think there's a great lesson for us. But notice what it says. When Jesus saw their faith, so Jesus looks at this and goes, you know, these guys are, this is, this is, these guys are good. These guys are dedicated. These guys are loyal. These guys are, 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 are so intent on helping their friend. And Jesus, and here's what you're going to see in the passage in a minute, Jesus knows everybody's thoughts. He knows their heart. He's God. And notice what the first thing Jesus says to him. Now think about it for a minute. They have dropped their buddy down from the ceiling. He's now landed in front of Jesus. <coughs> and what's the first thing Jesus says? Is this important? Your sins are forgiven. Not you're healed. Not get up and walk. The first thing Jesus addresses with this guy is his sins. Now, in this culture, you need to understand, the Jews linked sin and sickness together. They often believed if a person was blind, it was because of their sin or their parents' sin. If a, parents, if a person was crippled, it's because of their sin or their parents' sin. In this culture, that was a big, big, big issue. But Jesus, knowing his heart, I think it's Matthew or Luke, one of them says this, that he says, fear not. Your sins are forgiven you. It's almost the idea that we almost, and, and, and the word's very interesting, it's the word phobia, it's the word we get our word fear from. Um, it, it's almost like Jesus, knowing this guy's heart, knows that this guy is really, his biggest concern is his sin. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I, I, I'm interested because I don't know what his buddies are thinking. I mean, I, I'm wondering if his buddies are thinking, that's great, but, like, we want him to walk. But Jesus, knowing the biggest issue is his sin, says, let's deal with your sin. Your sin's done. I've forgiven it. It's okay. Now, notice what happens next going on. Um, and by the way, he says, son, which is another, also seen him. And he said, now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. All right, now, this is the first time in the miracles of Jesus that 
we have teachers of the law introduced. So one of the things is, um, one of the passages talks about Pharisees, one of them talks about scribes. The, the idea is that Jesus had stirred up enough attention that all of a sudden the religious rulers are coming to check him out now. And I think that's important to our story. Because these guys come to check him out. These guys come to listen. I mean, they're there when he's doing his teaching and preaching because they want to find out what this guy's all about. And now all of a sudden, in the middle of this, this guy drops down in front of him. These teachers are standing off to the side, being critical of the ministry of Christ. And now Jesus turns around to him and says, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven. And in their mind, they're going, that's blasphemy. You see, in, in, the bio, in, in, in this culture and in this time, there were three ways you could blaspheme. One way that you blaspheme was you um, added something to God that an attribute that he did not have. Okay? Um, you, you added something to it. Another way that you could blaspheme was you could add something that God was not capable of. For instance, if you said God sinned, okay, God's not capable of sinning. So that was blasphemy. The third way, and this is what they accuse Jesus of, is you equate yourself equal with the attributes of God. And when you're talking about looking at somebody saying your sins are forgiven, whoa, that was a God thing. That was not a man thing. Let me say that again. Because there are religions who teach otherwise. That's a God thing. Only God can forgive sins. And they understood that, and they look at this situation, and they're going... They're, they're thinking in their hearts, because again, nobody speaks. Notice what it says. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And this is what I think is amazing. He doesn't speak. It says he gets up, takes his mat, walks out in full full view of them all, all, amazed everyone, and they praise God saying, we've never seen anything like this. And that had to be an incredible thing to watch this guy who had been paralyzed. I don't know what his four buddies were thinking. You know, uh, you know oh, great, we don't have to carry the mat anymore. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what these guys are thinking. These guys are probably looking at this thing going, wow. Boy, we didn't expect that. Maybe they did. Maybe they had that kind of faith. I mean, it, it, it was incredible kind of faith to do everything that they did. And so in this thing, this guy, paralyzed guy, Again, when God does things, God does things completely. Stands up, picks up his mat, and walks out. And remember, this place is packed. So all of a sudden, people start moving out of the way for this guy to get out the door, and then he goes home. That's the story. Now, I think there's a lot of lessons for us, um, and and that's kind of where I want to spend our time this morning. Um, Some obvious, some not so obvious. Um, I think the first thing, the first lesson you can't miss in this story is the idea that our sin is the most serious issue we have with God. Our sin needs to be dealt with. Jesus looks at this guy, and the first thing that he deals with is his sin. He said, your sins be forgiven. You see, that's the greatest need for any of us here, is to know that our sins are forgiven. Because one day we will stand before God. 
And we will either stand there in our sin, or we will stand there clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You know, when I, when I take my last breath, when my heart beats for its last time, and I stand before Almighty God, I'm not going to be able to look at him and say, hey, look, I was like a good guy. In fact, I was like a preacher guy, so I had to get extra points for that. It's not going to matter. All he's going to be concerned about is, what about your sin? And I'm going to be able to look at God Almighty, creator of the universe, and say, you sent your son to take my sin. I asked him to forgive me. I put my faith and trust in him. He took my sin and gave me his righteousness. That's the only way. And so for each of us, it's important for us to understand our sin is the most important thing. Most of you, like me, have put your faith and trust in Christ. And you have come to a point where you've realized you can't stand before God in your sin, and you have asked God to forgive you, asked God to be, a, be your Savior, and, and you have that. It's not about all the church stuff, the baptism, all, all that kind of stuff. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that is so important that each of us be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, have we dealt with our sin? Many of you have. Some of you are still at a point where you're trying to figure that out. I would encourage you to understand your greatest need is your relationship with Jesus Christ. For those of you that have that, my next issue in this story is, I think one of the lessons that you see here is something we've been experiencing as a church for the last couple of weeks you see the significance and importance of helping somebody else. This guy couldn't help himself. But he had four buddies who came alongside. Four guys who said, you know what, I can't carry him all by myself, but I can carry a corner of that cot. I can't carry it all, but I can carry a portion of it. And I would say that for each of you, you need to understand that God has brought people into your life that you can help. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're not here for us. We're here to make an impact on those around us. And whatever it is, wherever you are, God has put somebody around you that needs help. And you're the one God has called to help them. And you have to see that. You have to open your eyes to that. And if you don't know, then you just kind of, it's kind of like, you know, I, 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 use, I use Kevin's example of, of when we were over there Monday helping Kevin. We got Kevin's place cleaned up. We still had some time. We still had a crew. We don't know what else to do. So we just went to the next neighbor and said, do you need help? And they said, you know, I, I said, I got, we got plenty of saws. We got plenty of people. We, we helped. And the neighbor said, you know, um, not really. I got, I got people coming. And I'm actually paying, you know, I thought it was great. He said, I'm actually paying my granddaughters to do this, so I want to see them work. So I said, great. So we went to the next house. We didn't know where to go, but we, it was like, okay, well, we can try to help them. We try to help. And, and honestly, if, if we, we would have kept going down the line until somebody said yes. Why? Because our role is to intercede, to come alongside, to help somebody else. And everyone who was a part of that on Monday, and everybody who's part of that the, the, the weekend before or the Saturday before or whatever else, will tell you it was a blessing to us as much as it was a blessing to them. I mean, can you imagine the four guys on the roof? Can you imagine these four guys on the roof going, 
I am so glad we took time out of our schedule to do that. Our friend is forever changed now because we were able to help get him there. They didn't heal him. They didn't fix him. All they did was carry him there. That's all they did. And some of you are saying, you know, well, you know, I, you know it's like I'm not, I can't do this, I can't do this, and I can't do this. I can't. Okay, great. What can you do? Because I guarantee you there's something. Some of you are phone people. You can call, you can call people and check on them. Some of you are like email people. Some of you are social media people. Some of you are stop by and visit people. You can do something. There's some role for you in the kingdom. Because if there's not, then God takes you home. He's done with you. But as long as you're breathing and moving, God's got a, God's got a plan and a purpose and something for you to do. I think another lesson, this is one of those multi-layered things that I don't think you, you, you see until you really start digging a little bit. Um, got to figure out how I want how, how I want to try to convey this. Um, interruptions are ministry. Let me say it again. Interruptions are ministry. Put yourself in Jesus' position. Jesus is standing there teaching them. What's Jesus' focus? He wants to minister to people, right? So he goes home to chill, to relax, to whatever else, and everybody comes. And what does Jesus do? Well, I got an opportunity to preach. So he teaches. And he's got a train of thought. He knows where he's going. He wants to accomplish things. He's answering her questions. Boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden, the roof starts opening up. And there's a guy now laying in front of him. What if Jesus would have said, hey, guys, don't do that. That's dangerous. Somebody's going to get hurt. What if Jesus would have said, hey, you know what? Let's all go outside where it's safer. No, no, no. Here's what happens. Jesus takes the interruption. You're preaching, and a guy drops out from the roof and ministers. He ministers. Okay, now listen, because here's the jump. The interruptions that come into your life are probably opportunities for ministry. But you see them as an interruption. Let me say it again. The, op, the, the interruptions that come into your life, you see as an interruption. Well, I've got all these things to do today and I don't have time for this. In reality, it might be and probably is an opportunity for ministry. And too many times, what happens is we get up at the beginning of the day with our to-do list, and our goal is it's a successful day if we've checked off our to-do list. Let me ask you something. Would Jesus have had a successful day if on his to-do list was to preach to these people? And when a guy started coming through the ceiling, he said, okay, guys, let's move it outside because i got to get this off my to-do list. No, no, no. Why? Because Jesus realizes that his life was dedicated to God, and that that interruption was ministry. If some of you could see this, it would transform the way you handle the pressures of life. Because what's happening right now is 
You're you're so focused on getting through that day, getting through that to-do list, that God gives you opportunities to minister. God gives you an opportunity to do something, but you're so focused on your to-do list that at the end of the day, you've gotten through your to-do list, but you've missed ministry. Stop and think about it for a minute. My to-do list, you know what's on my to-do list on Monday? To spend the day with my wife and to fish with my future daughter-in-law. That was on my Labor Day to-do list. Storm came. Now what am I going to do? My list has two really important things on it. What's that? I missed it. Uh, You know, my list has two really important things on it. Family. Versus an interruption, which is an opportunity for ministry. I will get to still spend time with my wife, and I did that week. And we will still go fishing again because we have a challenge to get fish out of a pond we can't get them out of. Um... It's another story. Uh, But anyway, um, and that will happen. But you know what? For that day, that interruption was ministry. And I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Why? Because what I could have seen as an interruption was really an opportunity for ministry. You're trying to get through your day, and that person's standing at your desk taking up your time. Is that an interruption? Or is that an opportunity for ministry? You're sitting at home. You've got your thing going on. You've got your plan. Somebody pulls up and stops. Is that an interruption? Or is that an opportunity for ministry? Some of you can remember this. You remember the days when, because I, I do, remember the days when you drive down a gravel road and you'd see a neighbor and the next thing you know, both of you are stopped. You're parked in the middle of the road. You've turned off the car and you're, sta- you're sitting there talking and the next thing you know, 45 minutes or an hour has gone by. Try to find those times today. Because most of us are rushing from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. I would challenge you to take and look at some of the interruptions that come into your life this week and ask yourself, is this an opportunity for ministry? And Jesus stops. And he doesn't keep going with what he's doing. He ministers. And he uses that as an opportunity, not just to help that guy, but to help those guys and to help all the people around him. I think the last lesson is this. The purpose of your actions is to back up your words. Let me say it again. The purpose of your actions is to back up your words. You see, this is the first miracle in which the religious leaders of the day are are gathered. And one of the things that Jesus is going to be critical of these guys of for the rest of his ministry is that their words and their actions don't match. So it's fascinating to me that in this story, no words are spoken except by Jesus. And when Jesus does do something, when he finally heals this man, something physical they can see, what does he say the purpose of it was? The purpose of his actions was to back up his words that to show you that I can say your sins are forgiven, My actions are going to be stand up and walk. 
My words, here's the principle, my words reinforce, I mean my actions reinforce my words. I still speak to words, but I have actions to back it up. I think that's the challenge for us. Because why? In the rest of his ministry, that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to say things, and then he's going to do things to back it up, and he's going to be critical of the leaders, the religious leaders of the day. Why? Because they would say things, but their actions were just the opposite. And Jesus is going to be critical of them. He's going to say, look, if you say that you love them, then this is what you need to do. You don't need to be fighting. You need to be peacemakers. He goes to it. So in other words, the principle here, I think one of the keys of the story is that Jesus uses his actions to back up his words. And I think that's the challenge for you and I this week. Stop and ask yourself, do my actions reinforce my words or do they negate my words? Um, let's, get, um, let's start to get really, really... Um, close and maybe uncomfortable for a few minutes, all right? Um, ah, let's start right off the bat. You say that you value people. You say that human life is precious. You say that there is nothing more important than the sanctity of a human life. That's what you say. But when you go to a ball game and you don't like the call the ref made, you say things and you act in ways that you want to treat him as less than human. You say that as a Christian in the workplace, you're a person of integrity and honor. But when you have the opportunity and you're doing a job for your employer, you cut corners. Or you fudge on the time clock. Or you fudge in the way that you report stuff. Or you pad your expense account. You say that you genuinely love your spouse. That they're the most important thing in the world to you. But in your actions, you say things to them and treat them worse than you would treat a hired hand. Do I need to go on? You see, the world is looking at both. The world is looking at what you say and what you do. You say, Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world to me. But in your actions, when you lose your temper, you will take his name worthlessly. See what I'm saying? So they get a confused message because your actions are not reinforcing your words. They're hurting your words. They're negating your words. I have learned this. When anybody finds out I'm a preacher... All of a sudden, the standard for my language goes from here to here. And over the course of time, I have been in situations where I have done dumb things. 
And by the grace of God, I responded in the right way, and I didn't swear. And the thing that they remembered more than anything else was that I didn't swear. Um, who is it? Is it your brother? Okay, yeah. Um, well, I forget what I did. I nailed my hand to the floor. Yeah, I, I nailed my finger to a floor. Um, you know how you're using those air nailer thing? You're like, boom, 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 boom. We're putting it down, boom, 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 boom. And I nailed my finger to the floor. Um, and we had to get the pry bar, pry my finger out of the floor. We did. Um, and, and, and we patched it all up, and then we worked at everything else. And Liz came back to me, and she goes, you know the thing that impressed my brother more than anything else? I said, what, that I'm an idiot? She goes, no, that, that, that you didn't swear. And I, I didn't even think about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't. Because, you know, most people, if they nail their finger, are going to say something they regret, you know. And, and it was one of the things. Why? Because he was not, he knew my words. He knew I was a preacher. He was watching my actions. He wanted to know, all right, when you're in pain, because you were stupid. How do you respond? Because I know what your words say. I want to know what your actions are. And listen to me. Don't underemphasize the influence and power of a testimony in that world. See, I, people can argue the Bible with me all day long. They can, we can argue words. The one thing they can't argue is the fact that my relationship with Jesus Christ has changed my life. It's changed the way I treat my spouse, the way I treat my kids. It's changed the kind of neighbor I am. It's changed the way I do business. It's changed the way that I treat a cashier or a waitress. Why? Because I want my actions to reflect Jesus Christ. And Jesus here looks at these guys and he says, so you will believe my words? Let me show you what my action is. Get up and walk. And I think that is a tremendous lesson because in this story, nobody else speaks words. You see the actions of Christ in this story and the words of Christ. And the, his actions are backed up, back up his words. And I think that's a lesson. So my prayer for you this week is this. That we're reminded that our sin has to be dealt with before God. And our focus should then turn to making sure our actions back up our words. The world has to see Christ in our actions as we come alongside and as we help one another. Because they cannot argue the power of a changed life. Let God use us this week. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for stories like this. Lord, to remind us of simple truths, but yet truths that are so hard to, to, to put into play and to live out on a regular basis. And Lord, some of the folks here are living in some, and will go to work in some horrendous situations this week where it is anything but a Christian influence or testimony. And Lord, many of them are the only light in some very dark places. Lord, give them the courage and the strength to be that light. Lord, for each of us this week, as we look at our own lives, may each of us be honest with ourselves that we've dealt with our sin before you. And then, Lord, may we open our eyes to those around us. And as we get 
go through this week and things interrupt our schedules and our plans and we don't get all the things checked off of our list, Lord, may we be able to look back at the end of the day and say that you used us and that we were able to minister and that we were able to come alongside and help the people that you brought into our path that day. And Lord, when it's all said and done, may we honor and glorify you with all we say and all we do. These things we ask in your name.